All right. I'm going to wrap up Sermon on the Mount. And um, I, as much fun as we like to have, and as lighthearted as what I've just shared with you is, this has been a, this has been a rough week. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be honest with you. This has been a rough week. Uh, it's been a rough week for many different things, and I feel like we need to address some of those. We need to talk about some of those, and we also need to take some time. Rather than praying in the middle of our service, we need to take some time praying at the end of our service for these things. Um, I will get to those, and I I don't see any young children in the room, but we'll, we'll be, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll not be salacious in what we talk about, but I, I think it, it bears an important thing to do that. But before we do, I want us to get to the final words of Jesus, which amazingly, um, I think, fits this season. Um, it doesn't just fit this season. It, this is really, like this is the, no pun intended, foundation for following Jesus. This is the foundation for following Jesus. And what we tend to do in the church is we tend to say, well, Jesus is the foundation for following Jesus. But that's a little bit of a cop-out because um, how, how do we simply say Jesus is the foundation. Theologically, doctrinally, Jesus' life, his divinity, his death on the cross, his resurrection is absolutely the foundation for why we believe what we believe. Absolutely. There is no question um, in my mind that the scriptures not only point that the resurrection was real, but it was necessary. So in no way am I, in the next few minutes, going to try to diminish the fact that our faith is built on the very fact that God came down in the form of Jesus and that he gave his life on the cross for all of our sins, that he died. He literally, he didn't just get injured and then get resuscitated. He died on the cross, and three days later he walked out of the tomb. And he has promised us a future, but he's also promised us a present. And so that is the foundation for our faith, and that is the foundation for our theology and our doctrine. It is the foundation by which we read the story of Scripture. But Jesus did not talk about the foundation of following him in the terms of, it's me. He didn't come in, and the Sermon on the Mount was not simply, uh, for all of you who want to be a part of the kingdom, just follow me. Now, he would certainly say that at different places, but it is the Sermon on the Mount that he really lays out for us what that looks like. And then here at the very end, some of these last words that he shares, Jesus is saying, now you have to choose here. And we are coming to the place where we have to make a choice. And many of us have already made that choice, and maybe some are still questioning that choice, but we do all have to make a choice about what do we actually want for our lives. And Jesus punctuates that here at the end. So let's look at Matthew chapter 7. I'm actually going to begin with verse 21. You can follow along on version if you want. Um, and we're going to back up because um, much of these last few weeks that we've been together are very much related. And then I'm just going to warn you, I'm then going to roll back and we're going to walk through the entire Sermon on the Mount, but quickly, because I want you to see how this relates to everything else he's just said. And then I, we're going to go through a, a time I want to address some things that have happened this week, both in our nation, well, all in our nation, but, but some issues are more personal to the church than others, 
and all of them are important to the church. So I want to walk through those, and then I want to, I want to lead you through somewhat of a prayer of lament, because a part of, a part of following Jesus is lamenting at times, and that's not the American way. American way is to avoid having to lament, but if you read throughout Scripture, you will find lamenting throughout. The fact that the world is not exactly the way, or any, often anywhere close to the way God intended. And it's also a prayer for God to act in a time of, of great, just distress, we'll say. All right, can we do that? Are you all ready? Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, that's an important phrase. The ones who enter the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom as we have seen so far is not just coming, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is also coming, but the kingdom is here. Jesus' point in beginning this uh, Sermon on the Mount is to, to, is to announce the presence of the kingdom. So this is not simply who gets in to, you know, into the um, wonderful, perfect, no suffering heaven after we die. This is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the kingdom right here and right now that goes on for all eternity. Um, so not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And we can, we could change that list to, didn't we go to church all the time? And didn't we give some money to the church? And didn't we help in the kids ministry every now and again? And didn't we, you know, help cook some meat for um, you know, a barbecue, and didn't I do this, and didn't I do that, and didn't I put, you know, a Jesus profile picture up on Easter weekend on my Facebook page? I mean, we could fill it in with whatever we want to fill it in, you know, and I was growing up, didn't didn't we put a fish on the back of our car? Some of you remember the fish on the back of the cars. Uh, we can put whatever list we want in here. It's important that we're, we're not just saying this is the only list. We're just, whatever religious activity we want to replace here, Jesus is saying you can do a lot of religious stuff and still miss it. The ones who don't miss it are doing the will of my Father. Um, and that's essentially what he's trying to say. Not your in or out. This is not in or out language. I don't want to rehash what we talked about last week. This is not just, it is in or out language, but that is not the point. The point is, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, the people that are a part of this kingdom, that are experiencing this kingdom, that are living in this kingdom, that are getting the benefits of the kingdom are the people that are doing the will of the Father, not just the people that are doing the activities, okay? Um, verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. This is relational. This is, this is not about all that we do. This is about our relationship with him. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So last week we talked about this in the context of mistaken identities. I identify as a Christian, I just don't live like one. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And that was it. 
what we've taken 21 weeks to get through, Jesus gave in one, one sitting to a group of people who had been following him, who had been hearing about him. And this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in which he is setting himself apart from all the other religious teachers of the day. Now, as we've talked about over the years, uh, the political climate of this group of people at this time is one of being basically a pocket kingdom of Rome. They're no longer ruling themselves. They are no longer in charge of their own destiny. Their own temple is now under the control of priests loyal to Rome. And they have, for the most part, not heard from God in about 400 years. Uh, so Malachi was the last prophet they heard from 400 years prior. Many have turned away from the faith, and yet all of their systems have continued in this way of the faith because their whole government was wrapped up in the church, which is different than sometimes we view here. Even though we talk about separation of church and state here, there is, there is a vastly different reality in the U.S. than there is in Israel today, or especially Israel back then. Even though many were turning away, it was still wrapped up in the daily practices and the temple was still the center of life. But they had, for the most part, left their faithfulness of knowing and following God, even though they're going through all the motions that God had set down through Moses. And so they're struggling, and they're giving up. And at this point, Rome has been in control for a long time, and is, they are actually not going to reform as their own nation at this point until 1965, when they reconstitute as a nation. All the way back to this moment when Jesus is entering the scene, Israel would not for the next 2,000 years rule themselves. And they were upset and disheartened and discouraged and hadn't heard from God in 400 years. This is why when John comes on the scene, John's preeminent message is turn back to the faith. Couched in the language of repentance. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. And what John knew was that the kingdom was literally walking the earth, ushering it in to everyone else. They just didn't know it yet. And so this is the reality in which Jesus enters in. And as we began the series talking about uh, the yoke of the different leaders, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The yoke of a rabbi were his teachings and interpretations of the law and what you had to do to fulfill them. And they had become burdensome and heavy and hard and people didn't want to follow them and they didn't see God doing anything in the world around them. They felt like everything was a loss. Everything was losing. Nothing was happening. God must be dead. And into this environment, Jesus comes in and he says, you have missed what this is all about. And he goes up on a mountain with crowds of people following him and he begins with these words. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account or because you're following his teachings. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now what we've discovered through the Beatitudes is these were not simply a list of things you need to go out and do, like go, be poor in spirit. See you next week. (laughs) This is not what he's uttering. What he's saying is if you are living in this world and you are poor in spirit, this kingdom is for you. If you are here in this place and you're being persecuted because you're trying to live this out and the people around you don't see the value in it and they make fun of you and they say Jesus is a crutch and that you're a bad person and you believe mean things, it's a blessing because the kingdom is yours. If you're living this life and you're just struggling to get by and you're mourning and you're grieving and you're just grieving not because you've lost something or, or because, you know, Tennessee's in another rebuilding season, right? right? But you're really mourning and grieving because you look around at the world, which is what we're going to do in a few minutes and what many of us are already doing now. We're going to look at the world. We're going to grieve because the world is broken and it is hurting people and people are breaking. If you grieve over these things, this kingdom is is for you. As they're going through and they're talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, Jesus understands that there's a difference between someone who learns the Bible to learn the Bible and someone who thirsts and hungers for the Bible and they want to know what does it look like to really be like Jesus. There's a difference in hungering and thirsting. I want it. And someone who just uses it from time to time when they need something. There's a difference. And it's sometimes hard for us to understand that because we live in a culture in which if you need something, do what you need to do to get the thing that you need or that you want. And so Christianity many times falls into the same space of saying, how can I use God to get what I want or get what I need? And when God doesn't supply that, we say, well, God must be dead or not real. And yet God is working a specific story and a specific plan in a specific way, and he's inviting us to come to him with the things that we need, but he's also inviting us to have a little more self-reflection. Do, is this a good thing to need or want? Many times what we tend to do in, in a land in which, and I, you know, I, I love our nation. This is Memorial Day weekend. I'm not in any way trying to disparage our nation, but I will say some of the mindsets that are central to who we are as a nation are detrimental to a Christian. The pursuit of happiness is an absolutely normal request for anyone to want to have in life. No one should set out in life pursuing worse, right? Like if, if, if I sit around and just think, man, God, too many things are going good. Like, can we, can, would you, could you just make a tragedy happen in my life? Like, and for that person, we'd be like, you need to talk to somebody. Like, that's not healthy. Right? And sometimes, Christians, we, we can over-spiritualize suffering in which we need to have suffering in order for us to actually be a good Christian. No. But 
suffering is not the thing we run for, and happiness in the context of a lack of anything uncomfortable is the wrong goal in life. But that is one of our founding principles. Now, just to be clear, so I don't try to paint myself as as this overly spiritual person, I pursue happiness, okay? I want you to be very clear. I do not pursue hardship. I I experience hardship. I don't run from hardship, but I don't pursue it. I don't like it any more than anyone else likes it. But there's a way of following Jesus that invites hardship into your life, and the rest of the world is not pursuing the same thing. And then Jesus says, when you do that, the kingdom is yours. As we go back through all of this, so these are the topics we've been through, and I'm going to give you the not even the Cliff Notes version. It's like the one-sentence version of what we've talked about so far. So next slide. We began, he begins following the Beatitudes, talking about salt and light, and we, we found that uh, this is really not just about us. Somehow we kind of flavor the world, even though I think there's some truth into that. We do hopefully flavor the world positively. But instead, uh, the imagery and the parable that he's using here is the imagery of preparing soil for something healthy to grow out of it. So Christians should live lives in which we prepare the soil of others' lives so that when they hear the gospel, they're not repelled by it, but they're able to receive it and grow in it. Every one of us should be a disciple. Every one of us should be a disciple maker. So it's not enough that we come and we learn. We guide others along the same path. Every believer guides others. The idea of discipleship in Scripture is that you have someone to learn from and you have someone to teach. And for our teachers in the room, uh, you probably didn't really know your material until you taught it for the first time, right? Many who teach Bible studies, we go in and we're like, this is to the best of my knowledge what this means. But we may not fully understand it until we've tried to show somebody else. It's very different. It's the difference in you tying your shoe and you teaching your three-year-old how to tie theirs, right? It's a lot harder. This is part of the plan. Every person invests in somebody else. In this pursuit of happiness... What we tend to do is we pursue the things that give us what we want and we reject the things that require something from us. And when we do that, we miss the whole point of how the kingdom works. When we come to church only expecting to receive, but we don't expect to give and we don't expect to be frustrated and we don't expect for things to go wrong and instead I'm just here to get everything that I need and to feel good and to walk out of here and have no more problems, we miss what the kingdom is really all about. And yet churches, and I've tried this in, the, in years past, churches will do everything they can so when you walk in the door, you feel taken care of and everything's good and positive. And we say all the most positive things about you and most positive things about life, so much so that the, the fastest growing churches in our community have a singular message. And that singular message is God's whole existence is to give you what you want. That is a cultural message that people want to hear. But what does that do to a person who embraces that message and then God doesn't give them what they want? The assumption is, well, either I'm doing something wrong or God's doing something wrong or God just doesn't exist. And in this mass exodus from the church, what we find is people simply saying, 
whatever, I'm not sure I would say God doesn't exist. He just doesn't matter because he's not giving me what I want. But it's many times the church that has taught them that because you can build a large group that way. And in America, bigger is better. And yet Jesus, whenever things got big, Jesus always said something to run them off, didn't he? And the crowds would come, thousands of people would come to hear him. You can't follow me unless you drink my blood and eat my body. Boom, they're all gone. That's how Jesus handled crowds. You know, we handle crowds differently in the church today. We take pictures. Nobody, I mean, people came. We had 600 people a day and 700 got baptized, you know. I see those posts all the time. You probably follow different people than I do, but... We do that, and it feels good, and it feels validating, and it feels successful, because in America, success is big. And the church has fallen to that message time and time again, and I fall into that message time and time again. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is for people that want to invest in each other, want to till the soil in each other's lives, and want to see this thing that's real actually grow in them. And so that when we get together, we don't talk about how good the sermon was, because I know that's what y'all do all Sunday afternoon. You message each other. The sermon was so good today. Quoting it. I know you are. You probably listen to it three times by the time you go to bed at night. I mean, at dinner table, you're talking about, right? Am I wrong? Yeah, somebody said, yeah. <laughs> yep. I don't even remember what you talked about. I don't, by the time we get to lunch, I can't even remember what you said. So <laughs> that's probably more likely. Jesus goes on, he says, salt and light. He says, I'm not here to get rid of the law. I'm not here to say none of this matters. I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to show you what it looks like. I'm, I'm here to, I'm right now telling you, if you understood the Old Testament, the way it was intended to be understood, this is how you would be living your life right now. And that is the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about anger. Anger is something that when we embrace anger, we embrace our place over someone else. They have wronged us and we likely, we rightly get to judge them and punish them. And that's what anger does. Anger is a natural emotion. You cannot control your anger. You can control your response to your anger, but you cannot simply say, I'm not going to be angry. Oh, I'm not angry anymore. That just, uh, we don't work that way, right? Anger comes. It just comes, but we have to figure out what's at the root of that anger and then how do we deal with that anger? And that rolls into some of the other things Jesus is going to say, like when you look at someone else's sins, because usually we get angry when someone sins against us, and it may not actually be a sin, but it just hurts our feelings and we get mad because when we talked about the anger train. Anger doesn't begin as anger. Anger begins usually as hurt. But we deal with our anger effectively. In our anger, we do not sin. We talked about lust in the form of uh, consuming each other. You only exist for my pleasure. I don't care about you. I don't care what's going on in your life. I don't care what my consuming you does to you or your life. It's just I want what I want. It's one of the reasons that pornography is so terrible. Because it's all just consuming. It's consume, 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 consume. And yet every person that you're consuming on the other side of that screen, their life is fracturing before your eyes and you don't you can't see that but their life is fracturing before your eyes and what you also don't see is that you are fracturing too and yet most statisticians will tell us that pornography is viewed by the majority of our population and it begins at a very early age 
within this great nation in which we stand up for the rights of others, we still make movies that gross millions of dollars and portray rape and sodomy, the abuse of children, those who are the least of us. We portray it artistically. We make millions of dollars, but then we condemn it when it actually happens. And then when the very actors and actresses fall into that same behavior in real life, we condemn them, we cancel them, we refuse to go see their movies, but then we'll go watch another actor portray that very same act and we'll applaud it and give them an award for it. We're broken. We break people. And we give people awards for doing it. Jesus says you can't consume each other. You're each made in the image of God. You each are valuable in and of yourself. You each have something within you. And it doesn't matter how attractive or unattractive you are. That is not where your value lies. And so we teach our daughters and we teach our sons that their value does not lie in their ability to show more skin or to be provocative or to shoot a TikTok video where they're they're having some kind of simulated sex. But in their minds, people are liking it and they're following it and they... They are saying good things about me when I do those things. And so that makes me feel valuable. And that is because we haven't taught them what real value is. And we're letting social media teach them that value. And that is not real value. Many of us who are addicted to social media post something and we can't wait to see how many likes we get. I'd like to consider myself an effective social media user. Those of you who follow me know I'm just a silly Facebook user. I post silly stuff most of the time. But there have been times in which I have posted. I remember when Twitter first hit, and it was like a race among especially church planners who had the most followers. I'd come up with this brilliant, inspiring thing and put it out and then refresh every few seconds how many people like it. It didn't take long to realize this is really unhealthy. Really unhealthy. And yet our kids get drawn in get drawn in people are not something to be consumed and that doesn't just mean sexually like that's why we serve each other we don't expect a few people to serve and then we consume their service and we don't serve like we're just here to consume you whether that be a worship team or whether that be a staff or whether that be volunteers or whether that be somebody who's just come and decided they're going to help out we don't consume each other we we give to each other and in giving to each other there's no need to consume because there's enough for everyone everyone's serving everyone's helping everyone's giving and this is a picture of the kingdom but it's not a cultural picture that fits within this culture that we live in because the predominant marketing message of this world is it's all about you there are ways that we have to fight the need to consume and if we simply say well i'm not lusting after people jesus said that is the same thing as sleeping with somebody like when your mind goes there it doesn't matter that your body didn't because if your mind goes there your heart's gone there and that's what matters we talked about divorce what we have a tendency to do within this in this world today in the churches we have a tendency to take somebody who's been divorced and we treat them like third class citizens and we completely miss what Jesus is trying to say here Jesus is not talking about oh you who have had a divorce what he's saying is 
He's following the exact same thought of lust. There's a reason divorce follows lust. Do not use your spouse for your own needs. Love your spouse. He's not suggesting that if you are a constant in constant state of abuse, you need to stay and constantly be abused or neglected. Jesus is not saying that. But what we looked at, and if you want to go back and listen to that message, you can. What we looked at is there were two scenarios in which men who were the predominant power structure of this time were abandoning their wives for younger people or someone that they wanted to have more uh, sexual exploits with, abandoning another group of people that could not go and take care of themselves. And that infuriated Jesus. Commit to each other. Take care of each other. Love each other. Don't try to consume each other. We looked at the picture of Genesis 1 and 2 where the picture of marriage, of coming together and clinging to each other is actually the picture of two things leaning against one another. And so husbands and wives support each other in tension against each other. So if you have tension with your spouse, this idea that a good, perfectly married couple never fights is like, it's possible but I don't know very many healthy couples that ha- don't have disagreements. Now, I don't mean fight like they really go at it. You're going to have conflict. And sometimes we think that conflict is absent if we are following Jesus. But, but, but what the Old Testament is literally saying is there's tension here. And in that tension and coming together, you are actually demonstrating a more complete picture of God. We talked about oaths and the need to be authentic and not to use God to, to come on our side and then judge others as a result, which we are really bad about. Now, we, we like to think of it as oaths because, well, I mean, keep your promise. Keep your promise is a lot more palatable to absorb than stop using God to domineer over somebody else, which is really what he's saying here. Don't gang up on somebody and say, God's on my side and he's against you. Because usually when we do that, God's actually not on our side. Even if we may technically be right that they've done something God would not have wanted them to do, once we put ourselves in a place above them, God is no longer on our side. That's what he's talking about. Live authentically. Don't lord over other people like you have something over them. He then enters into this picture of retaliation and much of the Sermon on the Mount is about how you interact with each other and interact with me, how we interact within our families, not just our church, but at work, how we interact at school, how we interact at the store, how we interact in our cars on a busy highway, how we interact with people. Jesus is regularly talking about this. And he talks about the fact that we don't hold things against each other. And not only do we not retaliate, but we forgive. And we forgive our enemies. And we pray for our enemies. And we love our enemies. We don't get even. had a great talk that week. Um, just about living life as with the open hand. I just think that is so powerful. Loving your enemies. I said love your enemies. That's a typo. Like that's a whole other idea there. I'm supposed to say love your enemies. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that could be an effective solution too, but I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. I don't know. He then enters into another place in which we have a tendency to ignore what Jesus is really saying, and we, we miss the forest for the trees. And the trees in the next section is about generosity and about prayer and about fasting. But really what Jesus is saying is live authentically. When you're generous, don't make a big show of it. When you're fasting, don't make a big show of it. When you're praying, don't make a big show of it. Be authentic in where you are in your faith. Make it real and don't make it fake like the Pharisees did. So he does talk about prayer and he does talk about fasting and he does talk about generosity, but he talks about it in the context of be real, be authentic. Then he says, store up treasure in heaven versus on earth because there is a difference in the two. One will pass away and one will not. But we are drawn more quickly to one than the other. Throw up treasure in heaven. He goes on to say, trust instead of worry. I'm a good father. I want to give you good things. Trust me. Don't worry about what's happening. It's all going to work out in the end because I'm at work in you. And we doubt this because sometimes it doesn't work out, right? At least not in the way we really needed it to. But yet God is still working. Trust instead of worry. And we talked about the, oh, the, the, the very well-known passage of the speck in each other's eyes where we look at the sin in each other's eyes and we typically, in, in this uh, day and time, we typically have our three to five big sins. Don't do that. You can't be a Christian if you do that. You can't come to church if you do that. I can't be your friend if you do that. I can't love you if you do that. Um, I'm going to spend my whole life letting you know how bad you are if you do that. And those five things typically are not the things that we struggle with. It's something that somebody else struggles with. And Jesus says, you should help them with their struggles, but you can't help them with their struggles until you've dealt with your own struggles because your struggle is like a log, even if their struggle is a speck. And yet we've become masters at replacing that idea, oh, mine's just a speck, but yours is a log. I can ignore my speck because you've got a log. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. No way around. you got the log. Deal with it. You can't even see clearly to help somebody else until you've messed with your own junk. We help with other sins once we've taken care of our own. Then he says, pray, ask and receive. Expect good things from God. And this is one of the most misleading places in Scripture. A few weeks ago, so I, I probably, since we started Journey, have probably named a false teacher by name maybe less than three times in the 15 years we've been in church. I just, I'm not exempt from being a false teacher. I make mistakes. I get things wrong. I regularly am like, you know what? I thought that was true, but now that I understand this better, that's not true at all. We make mistakes. But there are some, they are predators. They use, they use God as their product, and they are predators on other people. And I, I mentioned the name Kenneth Copeland. This, I, I mentioned it again today because... Jonathan is in Knoxville right now at a basketball tournament. Kenneth Copeland's church is in Fort Worth, Texas. We lived in Fort Worth for a while. That's why we're so um, aware of his ministry. It's a massive ministry. He has tons of money, lots of jets, lots of nice cars, all in the backs of people just hoping God would help them through their struggles. Give me money. God will help you through your struggles. That's his ministry. It's prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is an evil, evil teaching in the world. It's turned more people away from Jesus than anything else ever has. 
in our time. And it's rampant. It's rampant in our city. It's rampant in our country. We are the nation that authored the prosperity gospel because the other nations look at us as the most prosperous nation in the world. That's because of God. Because of God. Our pride, our greed, we've packaged it with Jesus and we've sold a bill of goods and the, and the, the practitioners of this will say things like, I need a faster jet so I can get the gospel out to the world. Pastor in Atlanta said that. I need a faster jet so I can get the gospel to more of the world. It's like, dude, like, guess what? I can email the other side of the world faster than you can get in your jet. And your jet's not going to be any faster than flying coach somewhere. I tell you that because as we walked over to his game at the convention center in Knoxville, Kenneth Copeland speaking in Knoxville. It's his victory tour. People walking around with t-shirts saying, I have my victory. You know what that means? I wrote my check. That's what that means. I'll tell you who got the victory of that talk. It was Kenneth Copeland. I don't talk often like this. Or about very many people like this. But there's a reason people don't trust the church anymore. There's a reason that people are walking away. They don't feel this is real. I don't feel God is real. I don't feel like he's good. Because here's people in their church that can't can't afford a meal and the pastor needs another faster, newer jet with a better DVD system in it. All right. You may disagree with me on the practice of ministry, but that's where I, I am on it. Ask and receive, but ask the right things. If I ask for a better jet, I should be surprised God doesn't want me to have it, right? The golden rule. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this is really just a repackaging of the message that says, uh, just love each other. But this is a practical way in which we do that. This is a practical way in which we love each other. Now that doesn't mean that what I want you to do for me is even good. That doesn't mean that that the test of what is good is simply um, whatever I want, and now I'm going to do that for you. Because I may want things that aren't good. And But this is a starting point of self-awareness to think about how do I love you? Well, how would I feel loved? Do I feel loved when someone ignores me? Well, no, I probably shouldn't ignore people. Do I feel loved when someone points out every failure I make? Well, I probably shouldn't point out every failure they make. Uh, do I feel loved whenever I come and I don't contribute and I just watch them work? Uh, no, I, should, I would want them to help if I'm working and they're just sitting around doing nothing. So there, it's, a self, it's an area of self-awareness. And then Jesus goes on to follow that theme into the section in which we find ourselves today, which is uh, now there are going to be difficulties and that arise when you follow Jesus. There are going to be false teachers. And they're going to try to teach you something other than love others how you would love, have them love you. This is, the, this is the first and the second greatest commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, your mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus says. Everything hinges on this. This is the whole point of the whole story. 
There are going to be difficulties that happen. And then there are going to be times you're going to believe the false teachers and you're going to do all the things that they say and then you're going to be like God and he's going to be like, you missed the point. Completely missed the point. And I find those the most frightening words of Jesus ever. And Paul also found them frightening, we looked at, when he said, I am scared to death that I'm going to run this race and I'm going to have missed it. I'm going to have preached this and I'm going to have gotten it wrong. And if you come to a place in your faith in which you struggle with, I'm not sure about this, and I'm doubting, and I have questions, and some of this stuff doesn't make sense, you are in good company. There are difficulties that are going to arise in following Jesus. And then we have this incredible ending passage in which he He basically says, the way you've just taken my words will determine whether you're following me or not. And he compares it to a house built on rock or built on sand. If a house is built on rock, it is a house that's going to stand in in the midst of trials and suffering and hardships and times when you're not sure if God is speaking to you and you're not sure if life is is going right or if life is about to fall apart. But if you build your house on the rock, if you you embrace these teachings in which I'm giving you, You're going to live a life that you can weather those storms. But if you don't and you build your foundation on something else, it's going to all fall apart. And that's what we're seeing. This is in some ways a retelling of the parable of the soils. The seed that falls in good soil grows and is healthy and produces fruit. But the seed that falls on the rocky soil or amongst the thorns gets choked out. It's the difference in being built on a rock and being built on sand. This is why we are, it's so important that we are fertilizing the soil in other people's lives so that when they hear the gospel, it grows and it's healthy and they are based on a foundation that can withstand life and the world and eternity. Versus these shifting sands, which is often what is trendy and cultural and popular in the moment. We are a horribly hypocritical people cracks me up you know there was a time when there were pictures of turtles with straw sticking out their nose and oh the world was on fire stop plastic straws greatest evil facing the world today are plastic straws and i remember going into a restaurant i won't name the restaurant it's one of my favorites and they had replaced the plastic straws paper straws but I had to put them through my plastic lid into my plastic cup. What is this? What is this? We need to save the world. There's too much plastic. Look at all the plastic in the world. Hey, did you pick up another 35-count of plastic single-use water bottles? We are horribly hypocritical when it comes to how we're going to save the world. We need to cut down all emissions and but I need a private jet to get to my next campaign stop. But you people who have cars with V8s, you're killing the world! It's so hypocritical. I'm messing now, aren't I? Some people aren't coming back after this. But we are hypocritical. And my point is not that one is right or wrong. My point is that we are inconsistent. This is why we don't put our hope in the government. We as the church, one of the foundational problems we have as the church today is we stop believing that God can change the world and now we trust our politicians. I don't know why we trust them. Like, what have they done to make us trust them? 
We do the National Day of Prayer. You know, I'm I'm on the leadership team for Pray Chattanooga. We do the National Day of Prayer. Somehow we inherited it. I I don't. I'm not a big fan of the National Day of Prayer. I'm not going to lie. I love prayer, and I think we should pray as a nation. I don't particularly like government mandated prayer. I feel like that's just a little bit weird, right? Like we should pray, but we shouldn't pray because the government tells us to. Which I know is like blasphemy to some people in the U.S. But um, you know how many politicians were at the National Day of Prayer this year? It was on the courthouse steps. To our knowledge, zero. Do you know how many were there last year? Like, we have a picture last year of, like, tons of city and county politicians because they got to speak and they got to get their picture in the paper. There was a National Day of Prayer because they got to speak and had their picture in the paper, but when they're not speaking and getting their picture in the paper, not a one shows up. That doesn't, I do not begrudge them not coming to the National Day of Prayer because, honestly, if I wasn't on the leadership team, I wouldn't go either. I don't like government-mandated prayer. I do think that we should pray. I don't like government-mandated prayer. I think that goes against the teachings of Jesus. But if the government says to pray and we want to pray, fine, fine, fine. My point is politicians are incredibly self-serving, and it usually has to do with getting elected. I'm really meddling now. On Memorial Day of all days, blasphemy. But I'm telling you, this is the way of Jesus. Jesus did not say, now, guys, if you want to bring change, you need to figure out how to get into Caesar's inner circle. Jesus never says that. Jesus never says, now, guys, what I need you to do, somehow you guys have to be elected to high priest. That's how we're going to turn this thing around. Jesus never says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a new democratic government, and we're going to have a constitution and then we are going to legislate our way into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus never says that. Jesus says, guys, the kingdom of heaven is here, but it can't be fully realized until I die on the cross. We belittle the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus when we put our trust in politicians. I don't care which party you, you vote for who you want to. You can't pay for whoever you want to. But that is not the role of the church, and that has become the role of the church. I was talking to some folks this weekend. I said, you know, I believe the church started losing its way when the religious right came into power. It's not because I disagreed with all the things that religious right wanted to do. I disagreed with the fact that they wanted to use politics to do it and then take our beliefs and enforce them legally at the end of an army on other people. That is not the way of Jesus. You can disagree with me. The beautiful thing about following Jesus is we don't have to always agree. But when I read the words of Jesus, this is not what the kingdom is. And I'm telling you, our need to legislate our faith onto people is what's pushing people away from Jesus. I also, personally, as an anecdote, also find that not one party has the... the um, moral high ground. Both have good things and both have bad things. We don't celebrate one party over another here, even though most people, and myself included, gravitate towards one or the other. This is a, this is a thing for us to lament as the church. All right. I've been, this is a meddling sermon. 
I started with these angry flamingo t-shirts and I complete bait and switch when you walked in the door, right? That's complete bait and switch. I realized that and I, I would apologize, but I do think this is important stuff. How do we wrap this up? Because our kid workers are going to want some relief here in a minute. He is literally saying, there's a way that works in a way that doesn't. Now, Jesus will say this in a number of different ways. He'll also say, uh, it, well, not Jesus, John says it as a vision um, from Jesus. says, you're either in or you're out. You're either hot or you're cold. Can't be in the middle. In or out. The kingdom is in or out. Now, what I think is important to, to recognize through the whole tenor of this message is this is not the point of what Jesus is saying here. In or out. In or out. We have a tendency to like to say who's in and who's out. Kind of the country club mentality. That's why the church has been called the country club. Because we like to say who's in and out. You look dirty. You're out. You've got problems in your life. You're out. Oh, you look like you've got everything going well and a healthy bank account. You're in. We have a tendency to do that in the church. Jesus is not saying you're in and out. He's just simply saying there's a way to experience it, but if you don't experience it this way, you're going to miss it. The point is not that Jesus wants people out. Jesus does not want anyone out. Jesus says, I want all to be saved. And he gives us that choice, and there are people that choose other, otherwise. And Jesus is saying, okay, but if you choose otherwise, even if you think you're choosing me, there's a way to choose me. And if you choose anything else... Like, you're just going to miss it. It's like if we go to the airport and we're going on the trip of a lifetime and we've got our plane ticket, but we show up at the wrong gate. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter that we packed our bags and we had the right intention and we really wanted to be there. If we're at the wrong gate, we're at the wrong gate. That's simply what Jesus is saying. Make sure you're at the right gate. And you do that by knowing God's word and struggling through this and letting the Holy Spirit work within you and change you and transform you. You don't have to be perfect. And I do not want anyone to walk out of the room thinking, man, I'm just not, I just don't think I'm good enough. That's, those also aren't the words of Jesus. So I would leave you with two things. And then I want us to pray together. I want to leave you with two things. Number one, I would ask you this question, and this is a question I ask myself, and you should ask yourself regularly. What lens do you view your life through? Because the foundation means this is the most basic fundamental lens by which I view life. If you view that through the, the life and teachings of Jesus, then everything else comes out of that. If it's somewhere up here that we add on, the foundation will crumble and fall, and those things won't matter. We start with every foundational view, worldview, mindset, focus, desire, has to start with the life and teachings of Jesus. And we build from that. And when storms come, you will be fine. But if you have something else, and Jesus is somewhere up here, but on the foundation, we have all kinds of foundations. Foundations, I want to feel good. I want to be entertained. I want to be happy. I want to be financially stable. I want to make sure I have more than my neighbor has. I want to make sure that, that I'm happier than everyone that I know. And we put all these other foundations and we try to build on that. They are not sustainable and it collapses. We start with the life and teachings of Jesus. Everything has to be built on that. And that will change everything. And it will change the way you vote. Because I still vote. But you may not always vote party lines. 
All right, I got to stop talking about politics because I know you're not supposed to talk about politics and religion. So we're just hitting them all today. What lens do you view your life through? Second thing is this, and I just want, want you to know is the invitation is always still open. If you ask that question and you realize Jesus is not really the lens by which I'm viewing my life. He's a lens, but not the lens. The invitation is always still open. In Revelation, John says this, those whom I love, this is Jesus speaking again through John, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I, he's knocking He's inviting. He's still saying the kingdom is here and it's available to you. Are you angry? There's a way to deal with that. Do you need to forgive somebody? Those are the keys to the kingdom. Are you not sure if you're loving others like yourself? Start asking the questions. How would I want to be loved? And I need to do that for other people. It's still there. I do want to have a moment of, of prayer things that I think we should be praying about in, in a, a system of lamenting um, certainly what happened in Uvalde, Texas. I mean, 19 students, two teachers, and then I'm sure you saw that one of the teacher's husbands died of a heart attack the day after. Just, uh, presumably out of grief. Things keep happening. I'm sure we need to have conversations about how do we keep these things from happening. Absolutely. I mean, who wouldn't have a conversation about how do we keep these things from happening? It's easy if we're in Tennessee and they're in Texas for us to say, yeah, well, you know, sometimes this happens, unless it's your kid. I think we view these situations as if these had been our kids. But regardless, we view them and we say, oh, God, the world is so messed up. This is not what you wanted. And we can't stop all bad things from happening. They're going to happen. But we can, we can lament and we can cry out and we can pray. And I do believe, just like the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to end today with the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. How can I help these things from happening? Maybe we couldn't have done anything what happened in Evolve, but you know what? We've got kids that are going through hard things here that their life is fracturing and they need somebody to love them right here. We have people that right now we can have eyes on what's going on in our community and, and not just be people that call out sin, but people who give out grace. And we help. When a person walks into the church, they ought to walk into the church and they ought to walk into some of the best friends of their life to be accepted even if their life is an absolute mess. And they're not getting that in the world. And if we're honest, they're not always getting that in the church. But that's what the church should be. And when we pray, God, give us our daily bread. We look around and we realize somebody doesn't have bread, but we got enough and we give them some of ours. We look at our community and we realize our kids are okay, but those kids are not. How can we help? That's the way of Jesus. That is the way of Jesus. There's a, even pastors are, are making fun of people saying, you know, thoughts and prayers. Like, when we take prayer out, we, we stop believing God can actually change people. 
But when we only pray, Jesus talked about that too. When someone's in need of bread and you say, oh, may God take care of you, you be well, like you're cursed when you do that. If you could have done something to help feed them and all you do is say, I'll be praying for you, like that's completely opposite of the way of Jesus. And that's one of the reasons I believe Jesus modeled the Lord's Prayer the way he did. Give us this day our daily bread. Our bread. I got enough, but you don't. Guess what? Now you do. Prayer answered. Prayer answered. This is the way of Jesus. And it's crazy that it feels so awkward. When we should be experts at this after 2,000 years. But this, these are the problems. Jesus says there's going to be distractions. There's going to be perils along the way. There's going to be false teachers. You're going to get driven away. You're going to embrace wrong teachings. And then you're going to think you're in the kingdom, but you're not. We only come back when we understand the teachings. The other thing that happened, and I don't feel like I need to put a lot of time in this other than to say that the, uh, we were a Southern Baptist church at one time. I went to a Southern Baptist. I have three degrees from a Southern Baptist seminary. Grew up Southern Baptist, loved Southern Baptist. Like most Southern Baptists, I believe that Southern Baptists were the only true Christians in the world, just like most Methodists believe that about Methodists. Presbyterians believe that about Presbyterians. Journey Church people believe that about Journey Church people and other churches. You know, it's just this weird thing we do. We think, well, I'm right, and so anyone who's like me is also right, and everybody else is wrong. Like, that's not the way it works. But um, we were. I have family that are uh, staff members of the Southern Baptist Convention. I... Southern Baptist Convention is one of my clients, to be honest. They're one of my clients. I work for, they work, or I work for them. Um, over 700 names were released Friday of clergy members, volunteers, people in authority in churches that sexually abuse somebody. Over 700 names that have been in a private list and they decided what was best for the convention was to hide it. And nine of the people on that list were still serving in leadership roles in churches. And we sweep clergy sexual abuse under the rug. We deny the gospel. children those who are emotionally impaired mentally impaired those who have been victimized their whole life and they came to the church to find relief and the very one preaching about the relief of God goes on to victimize them and then we cover it up this is the church this is not some weird group this is not some fringe religious group. This is the mainstream church in America. And, and if you think there's only 700 names, that's just the names they had, they had collected. Is there any reason why people don't trust us? We bring the hope of the world when we victimize you. And our organization and our budget and our reputation is more important than caring for the people who have been hurt, that's what happened. And it's not just the Southern Baptist Convention. 
It's happening all over the place because we've embraced a gospel that is not the true gospel. We need to lament this. I can't change it. Like, we can't all of a sudden decide, Journey Church is going to fix the clergy abuse problem in America. We can't do that, and this is one of the reasons we lament and we pray and we don't hide and we call things out. I have people, they get upset with me if I call things out, like, you all sin. Yeah, but you know what? There are some things that we don't get to ignore. Yes, we allow them to be restored, but we don't put them in a position to do it again either. This is the last thing I want to share with you. I said, is that the third time I've said that? Oh my gosh. I just... Any of my friends who are my age, who are pastoring churches, are very discouraged. We are very discouraged. And it's not just pandemic stuff and church size stuff and budget stuff. I mean, it's not that stuff. And I just, I meant to say earlier, like many of you have started giving and oh my gosh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being generous to each other and to our church. And that is allows us to continue and to do more things in our community and um, we're discouraged because we want people to know the hope that we have that Jesus is the answer that you can walk with him and experience the Holy Spirit in your daily life and it feels like we just get our feet knocked out from under us all the time we also recognize some of us came up in a system and of the church that we thought was healthy and we realized it really isn't. And we're now seeing this come to fruition. We're seeing well-known pastor after well-known pastor after well-known pastor with lifetime history of abuse. And yet we used to go to their conferences to learn how to do church better and to reach more people. And we are so discouraged. Talking to my parents last night. My parents grew up, and my parents were the last generation to see the church in its heyday. The church has been in decline since 1950, not 1990, not 2000, not 2010, not 2020. Look at the numbers. The church has been in decline in America since 1950. My generation came in wanting to change the world. Many of you are in my generation. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And we realized we were hurting sometimes more than we were helping. We can't change that. Jesus has gotten a hold of us. He's changed our view. He's changed the way we do things. And now we, we believe our place is to provide the fertile soil for those coming behind us to do something better than we did. Clergy sexual abuse is one of them. We've got to got to fix it. We've got to fix prosperity gospel. We've got, to fix it. We've got to fix the idea that we're better than other people. That a person, no matter what they look like or no matter what lifestyle choices they've made, somehow they're not also made in the image of God and worthy of value and to be valued. We've got to fix that. One of our students, our college students, incumbent upon them to take this gospel that is real and true and real and to pass it on to the next generation and fix some of the problems we made. I don't say this with joy in my heart. 
Next week, another story will come out, and the church is going to get his, knock, his legs knocked out from under it again. And you know what? Um, I'm still following Jesus. I want you to follow Jesus with me. You can go vote where you want to. You may completely disagree with my political opinions, but I'm not sure you even still know what my political opinions are. It's kind of the point. You may completely disagree with me. I still love you, and that's how the world works, and that's how we work. We have different perspectives. Everybody in this room has had different life experiences from me. Therefore, you are moved in a different direction than me. And you know what? I'm 100% okay with that because I'm not here to get somebody elected. I'm here to be a part of the kingdom with you. Let's do that together. We need to go into the community, and we've got a lot of work to do because they think we're a bunch of abusers. They think we don't believe what we say we believe. We think we want to enforce our views on them legislatively and that our God's not real because he's not given them the things that they prayed for and somebody told them that what God does is give you what you prayed for, give you what you pray for, and that is not what he said. He's got some work to do. Jesus is real. He's coming back. There's a way to be a part of the kingdom and there's a way to not. Let's be the kingdom. All right, we're going to pray sing, and I'm going to go prostrate myself before the children's director and tell her, I'm sorry I kept you all in here for so long. It's my wife, by the way. And uh, I just, I love you. Um, I'm discouraged, but I'm not distraught. I'm hurting, but I'm not without hope. So I don't want you to leave here thinking, Mark's like in really bad shape. Yeah, I am in bad shape, but you know what? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is what it looks like. It looks like sometimes grieving, mourning. Jesus also said, blessed are those who grieve and mourn. There are people who won't have anything to do with me because of my beliefs. And Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of me. Sometimes our blessings come with hard things too. But Jesus is worth it. Amen? I'm going to begin our time of prayer. If you'd like to give a time, if you would like to pray, you can. If